0: Good morning. Millions of Israelites headed out of Egypt into the Promised Land or toward the Promised Land and only two of the original company arrived. The rest died in the desert. The writer to the letter to the Hebrews performs, as we've been looking, kind of a spiritual autopsy and identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed their lives and caused them not to be able to enter the promised land. Uh, why did so many children of God die in the desert? What we find is that they rebelled. And rebellion has the sense of bitterness. They were disobedient, and there was a disobedience rooted in disbelief. And at the deepest level, the bitterness, the sinfulness and the disbelief-based disobedience were rooted in one thing, unbelief. And in the midst of a description of rebellion and disobedience and sin and unbelief, the writer in this part of his letter explores and peers into the heart of God. And what he reveals is Shocking, in light of the context. God is at rest. In a world where evil runs amok, it seems, God is at rest. Look what it says in Hebrews 4, 3 through 10, actually 11. It says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So, then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by by the same sort of disobedience. We begin to look then at what is surprising for us when we get an image of what God's state of mind is or state of being is, it indicates that God is at rest. He says, um, For we who have believed, in verse 3, enter that rest as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. It says that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and rest is the result, then, of God's work being finished. That's what rest means. It's when you are accomplishing a task, the task is finished, and the task being finished, then, you're able to rest in the wake of finished work. It doesn't seem right, though, for God to be at rest. Question. Does it seem to you that God's work is finished? How can you say then that he's at rest? Uh, in the context of hard-heartedness and bitter rebellion and sinful obedience, God's at rest. Uh, when we look at the state of the world, finished work is not the first descriptor we would apply to the state of things in this world. It says God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The seventh day focuses us on a specific aspect of God's work, and we are back in Genesis. We're back in creation. And what has happened then, God has finished creating the world. And on the seventh day, that being done... um, There is a sense of finished work. The Bible does not stipulate exactly how God does creating. A lot of different senses for how it happened, how quickly it happened. The major thing that we come to grips with here is that God created the world and that it was His initiative. He's the one that did it. And having did it, having done it and completed it, He rested from his works with respect to creation then, God is at rest. We are able to look at creation then and draw some conclusions regarding God's competence to finish what he started. And that's what it suggests. Look what it says in Romans 1, 20 to 21. It says, for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We can't see God. John says, when he writes, at that point, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he has made him known. Jesus makes God known. We can't see, have not seen God the Father. The expression of God's invisible qualities and divine nature, though, can be seen. It has been revealed. We don't just have to hear it and take it by faith. There is a venue, a context in where we can see God's invisible qualities, his, his godness. And what I would have you do then is look out that way. Look that way. If you look outside at the way God has put together creation, he puts it together in such a way that it continues to go on. He doesn't have to wind it up every morning. So when he came to the point of finishing creation, would you agree with me? That tells us something about him. It tells us about things that we cannot see, but that are obvious from what we can see. This is a God of variety. It's a God who, when he finishes something, it is done well and it's finished. There's not stuff you can add to it. That's what the writer is suggesting. That is the kind of work that God does. And so, from the point of... Creating the universe, let's call that cosmology. Cosmology, the the study of the world from the, the from the perspective of cosmology. God's work is finished. From the perspective of anthropology, maybe not finished. But what the writer is pointing out is this is the basis upon which we believe that God is finishing what he started. We are to look at this world and trust God to finish his work in us, the way he finished his work in the world. We're to look at that, say, "This he finished this, so I don't need to be worried about him finishing me. Even though there's this and this and this and this, the God who does that and finishes that, is a God I can trust to finish me. That's what the writer is suggesting. Uh, we are to look at the finished work in our external world and trust God to finish his work in our internal world. Imagine you're going to have a portrait painter. And you go in and you look at the gallery and you see the work that this painter has done. And so you study it, you are convinced that this person is very skilled and very gifted. And so what you're able to do then, based on your perception of finished work that he has done, is you're able to then sit and be patient while he finishes your work. That's the sense. The world is God's canvas. And his name is ascribed. And what he would have us do then is look at this. And based on what we see, the gallery of creation, he would have us sit in a seat, look to him in the middle of being unfinished and say, you know what? The God who finishes that is a God who can finish me. That's what thats what we are being encouraged to do. Um, the world is God's canvas again. Not trusting God to finish his work, not trusting God to finish his work in us, is at the root of restlessness. Not trusting God to finish the work he began in us, in mankind, is at the root of restlessness. Um, This is what happened on route to the promised land. Look what it says in Hebrews 4. Pick it up in verse 5 to 11. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Disbelief-based disobedience is the reason the Israelites did not enter God's rest. They didn't trust that he could and would finish what he started. But that doesn't mean that God kind of folded up his tent and removed the possibility of entering rest. It is still possible for you to enter that rest. There is a Sabbath rest for those who hear what God is saying. And what God is saying to you is, I want you to enter my rest. I want you to enter my rest. It's my rest, God says, and I want you to enter it. Um, God invites us to enter his rest. Now, here's what he doesn't tell us. When God says, enter my rest, he is not saying to you, I want you to control your restlessness. It's not what he's saying. It's a different thing. If we enter God's rest, we don't have to control our restlessness before we enter God's rest. In fact, what God would say is bring everything with you. Don't leave those things that disturb you. Because what disturbs you doesn't disturb him. He's resting. He rests in the middle of all kinds of stuff. What we are told then is where to Enter his rest. We are not to control our restlessness. Neither are we to exit our restlessness. It's not exit your restlessness. It's enter his rest. Uh, And that's what we are to do. Entering God's rest in the context is the solution to hard heartedness, bitter rebellion, and disbelief based disobedience. Do you want to be less hard hearted, less rebellious? Less characterized by disbelief-based disobedience? Three words is the solution. Enter God's rest. This is what the writer is saying in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience if you don't want to end up in the same place that the Israelites ended up not arriving He says, enter God's rest. Um, Entering God's rest requires a couple things, but first let's understand. Let's understand what we're talking about here. This is the solution, this is the answer. What do I do to be the person God wants me to be? Enter God's rest. What do I need to do to be more responsive to God? Enter God's rest. What do I need to do to be able to move in the direction of being more obedient? Enter God's rest. Enter God's rest. That's what he's saying. Entering God's rest is a solution. So what that means for us, it's not nice. Oh, isn't that nice? Nice. Isn't that nice? God wants us to enter His rest. He, he's a little bit out of it, you know what I mean? He's kind of a little senile, you know, in looking around, but it's really kind of quaint that God wants me to rest, even though everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's really nice. Uh, it's not nice. It's not nice. It's necessary. necessary enter God's rest enter God's rest enter God's rest it's his rest not exit your restlessness don't control your restlessness enter his rest that's what he's saying Um, entering our rest entering God's rest requires that we see God at rest you know what that's tough for us It requires that we focus on God rather than on ourselves. It requires that we focus on God rather than on ourselves. We think of what he is thinking, what he is feeling. Um, We have to see past the reflective glass of our own behaviors. When we look at God instinctively, and again, this just happens, Some of us are more aware of it than others, but it happens to all of us. We turn our gaze toward God and it's like looking in reflective glass. If you look in reflective glass, you get close to it, you know the way reflective glass works, and if you get really close to it, you can see through it, but if you're far away from it, the initial thing you see is yourself, and you can't see through it, and that's what happens when we look at God, we turn our face toward God, and what we end up seeing is how disobedient I am, he's loving, I am unloving. He is holy, I am unholy, and so what we see reflected back is our disobedience, our lack of whatever. And what God would have us do is look carefully enough past our own reflection at Him. What is He thinking? How is He acting? He would have us look at him to see what he is doing. That's very difficult for us because it requires us to do something very unnatural for us. It requires us to gaze at him and glance at ourselves. That is very unnatural for us. What we do, we gaze at ourselves and glance at him. We focus on Am I doing what's good? Am I controlling what's bad? And we focus and then we glance. And okay, you're not beating me up yet. Okay, I'm going to keep. Okay, and that's, we've got our gaze and glance upside down. Entering God's rest requires you to turn your gaze and glance upside down, to gaze at God and glance at yourself. That's very challenging for us. And when I say this is what we should do, and I, I really am, I mean this, this is not easy. It might sound easy, but it's very difficult. But it is the solution. Uh, exactly how do we enter God's rest? We're going to talk about that in the seminar. We're going to talk about rest and restlessness and discuss it. We're going to talk about the steps to entering God's rest. We'll find there were four of them, and it will help us. As we talk about those things, that's at the seminar. We'll have an opportunity to talk and share. And and I encourage you, it's in the morning on the last Saturday in September, you have the stuff in your worship folder. So if you're able to set that aside, it'd be very helpful. Again, um, what we're talking about is critical. Um, Let's talk this morning about, and we'll deal with how in an abbreviated form over the next weeks. uh, Let's talk about another related issue. We talked about why, kind of, why enter God's rest. It's the solution. We're going to talk about how over the next weeks and at the seminar. Let's talk about when, because that's what this passage focuses on, when we enter God's rest. Look at what it says, um, verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the world word already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not enter, do not harden your hearts. When do we enter God's rest? What's the answer? Today. Today. That's the day God wants us to believe. Today. Not what we did years ago. Not what we'll do in the future. God would have us enter His rest today. Um, Today is the day we are to experience God's Sabbath rest. It says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. What day is the Sabbath? What day is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is today. And if I, act, and there's the opportunity to experience Sabbath rest, if I ended up asking you on Tuesday, I see you when you're, I say, what day, is this? what day is the Sabbath? What would you tell me? What's that? And how about Thursday? Friday? Saturday? Monday? Tuesday? Wednesday? Thursday? Friday? Saturday? What day is the Sabbath? Today? 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 The Sabbath is something we enter into 24-7, not 24-1, not one day, 24-7. And again, it's not something that we, but it is something to be conscious of. It's something to have as our focus. Um, God commands us to enter his rest today. You know what that means? Again, this is going to sound weird, but you get you cannot trust God tomorrow. Can't. You cannot trust God tomorrow. You can trust God and if today becomes tomorrow then it's no longer tomorrow, it is and it's the day you're going to trust him. So you can't trust God tomorrow. You can only trust God today. Um, It's extremely difficult to trust God daily. On a worldly Level, you know, what we find our rest in stockpiled resources, stockpiled resources. We think, OK, um, what are we going to need in order to manage tomorrow? What are you going to need for tomorrow? What we, what we do is we think about what we're going to need tomorrow. We plan, and that's OK. And then we assess if we have sufficient resources for tomorrow. So we think about what tomorrow's demands are. We weigh today's resources. And if the resources allow us to believe that we'll manage the demands, then what do we feel? Rest. I'm good. I'm good. I have uh, just a couple of days and then I have a... Um, Labor Day vacation, so I can squeeze by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I think I can squeeze by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I'm into Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Okay. And, you know, this isn't wrong. It's, it's how we find rest horizontally. Horizontal rest, worldly rest, and again, I'm not saying worldly in a bad way. It's just worldly. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's worldly. Worldly rest is... Tomorrow rest. Would you agree? Tomorrow rest. Godly rest is today rest. Today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts. Rest is entered daily because restlessness surfaces daily. You know what the problem with restlessness is? When you enter God's rest today and you wake up after you've gone to sleep you might be rested physically or not. But you know what already resurfaces tomorrow? Restlessness. It's there, and it meets you. You don't ask for it to be there. You start to wake up, and you start to think about what I have to do, and oh boy, I am so tired, and I can't always, I'm going to have to see her, and I'm going to have to visit him, and I'm going to have to take care of that, and I'm going to have to take care of this, and I'll tell you what, I'm lying in bed right now, and I just don't have it, and, and so we end up feeling, we feel restless. Uh, restlessness will resurface tomorrow. Here's a question. Why are we so prone to restlessness? Why? It just just absorbs us. It just comes up and takes us. um, Look what it says in Genesis 2. God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is right after. This is after God finished. And God is at rest. And this is what he says. From a position of rest. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not a good idea. The day that you eat of it and become preoccupied with good and evil, on that day, you're going to die. Um, The knowledge of good and evil. Okay, it goes on. You shall, from that day of it, you shall surely die. Do you know what ends up creating restlessness for us? Preoccupation with good and evil. Preoccupation with good and evil. The preoccupation of good and evil eclipses our ability to look into the face of God. We try to look into the face of God, but we can't because we get waylaid by good and evil. There's good, and I want to cling to that. And we glance at, we gaze at good, and we glance at God. God, be, I'd really like this. <laughs> yeah, I'd really like to retain this good, or we see evil coming, and we say, you know, God, I'm, this is coming, and there's that coming, and and I, oh, gee, I don't want that. I don't want that. And so we focus on good and evil, and when you, we focus, when we focus, when we focus on good and evil, it's our default setting. I'm not saying that this is something you might do. This is what we do. It's what we do. And we see good and evil, and it's, we contain, we try to contain the evil and retain the good. And we gaze at these and glance at God. That's kind of the way it works. Um, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden triggered restlessness. Do you remember what happened? They ate from the tree and what happened immediately what happened immediately after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil <laughs> they got kind of restless about their appearance <laughs> and then they heard god and they were nice and rested and they they really wanted to connect with god right and then they they went you know, Then they hid behind a tree. You know what I would have you see? See them covering themselves up and running. And then God comes and he says, where are you? And they come out and he says, it's the woman's fault. She's the one blaming, hurling, hiding, avoiding, attacking. Would you agree with me that those are the results of restlessness? Hiding, hurling. Avoiding, attacking, if you hold something, it's hard to hold something when you're restless. You want to get rid of it. Or you want to grab it. It's hard to approach something when you're restless. It's more natural to avoid it or attack it. It's hard to hold, more natural to hide or hurl. Uh, Very difficult. Uh, We end up with anxious self-consciousness and fearful God-consciousness. Preoccupation with good and evil promotes restlessness. Um, Again, when we divide life into good and evil, we automatically determine how we're going to retain good and contain evil. Um, I want you to notice something about Jesus. It says in Matthew 19... And behold, the man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Didn't really even address the person's question, but he did address the person's problem. Said, does it again. A ruler asked him. He doesn't ask him about good deeds. He puts good on Jesus now. He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, who is God alone. What the, what the serpent said to Eve... You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is fluent in the language of good and evil. That's what the serpent is intimating. So you eat from the tree, you become like God, because God thinks about good and evil. That's what he does. He looks at you, God does. And he classifies you as good, evil, your thoughts, good, evil. And that's why we think that we need to be conscious of good and evil, because we think God is. And that's what the serpent indicated, and I think he really believed that. But then, when God showed up on the planet, was Jesus fluent in the language of good and evil? Did he focus on good and evil? Somebody asked, good teacher, why do you ask me about what's good? Well, I think you're supposed to be fluent in the language of good and evil. You don't know, comprendo, good and evil. I don't talk good and evil. I don't divide life into good and evil. Okay, well, then he's a little bit testy, isn't he? Okay, I'm not going to take good teacher. Then I'm going to say, okay, <clears throat> okay let's, what good thing must... Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one. What Jesus is indicating, this is really difficult. And again, it sounds easy, but it's hard. What Jesus understood, if you divide life and focus on good versus evil that will eclipse the face of God. Focusing on good and evil will cause you to eclipse the face of God. You will gaze at good and evil and glance at Him. And when that happens, it's hard, not, not hard, you have to look and gaze at God in order to enter His rest. If you enter, if you focus, and when we focus on good and evil, we can't enter rest. It's not a once and done. This is a path that God leads us on to cultivate in us the ability to look at God, gaze at God, and glance at our behavior. You ask, why do we make such a big thing about God's forgiveness, about no condemnation? Is it because we want to treat sin lightly? No, it's because we want to treat sin effectively. What does it take to treat sin effectively? Three words. What are they? What The first one begins with E. The second one begins with G. The third one begins with R. What do you need to do to treat sin effectively? What do you need to do to deal with disobedience? How about rebellion? What does it take for us to be more the people God wants us to be? Enter God's rest. And that's going to cause us to, listen to me, we're going to have to learn to look at him without cringing back because he's because we think he's looking at the bad thing I did yesterday and we cringe I can't look at him you have to look at him it's the only way out of it and that's why we're not sliding things aside when we talk about new covenant we're not washing over sin we're dealing with it Gaze at him. And we're learning that together. We learn it together. It's not once and done. You've got to keep on coming. You hear it over and over and over and over and over. And then what ends up starting to happen, and some of you understand this, it starts to happen. At first it feels like you have to grab some of these things that we talk about. But then you find yourself being a little more gentle with yourself. You you are a little bit more aware of God and His commitments. His commitments. And you find, I am changing inside. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. We're all on the same road. The road of trying to figure out how to enter God's rest. And it's not a road that's commonly walked on. And I've talked about this, but in 99.9%, it might be a little extreme, (laughs) 99.8%. Most sermons I hear directly or indirectly create an image of a restless God. And what you need to do in order to get God to be at rest, no, that's upside down upside down. Not the way it works. God is at rest. And as we understand, God is at rest. Even in the midst of our disobedience, you know what? By the way, your disobedience does not make God restless. Your rebellion does not make him restless. Your hard-heartedness does not make him restless. But as you enter his rest, you will find yourself being less hard-hearted, less rebellious. You understand. This is what Jesus... Jesus didn't gaze at good and evil and glance at the Father. Jesus gazed at the Father and glanced at good and evil. That's what I want us to learn to do. And if you haven't done it in a while, dust off your copy of 40 Days with the Ten Commitments and look at it again and again. And again, and again. Because it focuses on the Father. It won't tell you what to do. It will tell you who he is. And that's the secret. That's the secret. We gaze at good and evil and glance at God. And this is the root of restlessness. Rest requires that we gaze at God and glance at good and evil. Um, Learning to enter God's rest. Come on up, Learning to enter God's rest is powerful. It's what it says. Let us make every effort to enter God's rest so that we will not fall by the same sort of disobedience. Entering God's rest is priority one. Spiritually. Spiritually. Let me pray for us. God, you know when we get our gaze and glance upside down, it's natural. And that doesn't surprise you. And what you do, though, is you invite us to enter your rest. And you would have us slowly and gradually reorient our focus so that your face eclipses our face. And as we become preoccupied with your face, something dramatic happens. Our heart gradually, progressively begins to soften. Our breathing slows down spiritually. We rush less and rest more. We still notice things. There's still things we plan. There's still things we look at in the future, but we hold on to the future and we hold on to your hand at the same time. Anyways, would you continue to, to teach us about entering your rest. We'll look at how, and today we'll look at when. It's a day at a time. That's hard for us, and you know that. Would you teach us slowly about approaching you daily, entering your rest daily, in Jesus' name, amen.